The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight um, the topic is Dukkha and I'm sure just hearing that sort of strikes all of us a particular way. But of course, the real point is in dukkha, it's the cessation of dukkha or the ending of dukkha. We began the retreat that by talking about freedom. And so the point isn't to be morbid, the point isn't to focus on what's difficult in life as if, um, you know, the whole path is about being honest about how miserable things are, how unpredictable or unreliable things are. Last night I used the image, you know, a Nietzsche or change. It's not just that things arise and things pass away, but the more obvious things that come and go like you know, Monday has come and gone, Tuesday's come, is soon to go. But it's it's a, even more, uh, it's more pervasive than that. Like, whatever we look at clearly, whatever we relax with, we see that it has this quality, this essence of change. It's not a thing like we imagine things to be superficially. Now, even the retreat that we're on. No, it isn't a thing. It's this uh, constantly changing process. But because we're able with our minds, our language, to step back and call it a retreat, the year-end retreat, that has a stability to it. So I mentioned, you know, you had this image of this world of change or a sea of change. But it's only a problem, change is only a problem if there's some resistance to it, if there's some mind thinking that it's a problem. And this is really the birth of dukkha. It's not that dukkha is inherent in experience or in life. Dukkha arises when our mind, when the mind resists the way things are. It's like that uh, existential rope burn. You know, here we are trying to stop something from moving that can't be stopped. And so we create heat, you know, we create friction. Or, you know, the image the Buddha used is the image of fire. It's such a potent image, fire burning as dukkha. Desire is burning. You know, attachment to desire is burning. So it has the image, I'm sure you've heard. In Nibbana, the reason Nibbana arises as a, a word 
and the Buddhist in the Buddhist teachings is because it's the extinction, it's the flame going out. But it's not like how we imagine the fire. This is from Ajahn Tanisaro. Fire when burning is in a state of agitation, dependence, attachment, entrapment, both clinging and being stuck to its sustenance, its fuel. Right? So you know, we think of fire as maybe something beautiful, especially in a Minnesota winter, but it's an agitated process, independence on certain conditions being there. There is a particular sutta where the Buddha describes, you know, one, two, three, and up to 40 cartloads of timber. You know, you can imagine dry wood. You know, and someone were to light it, and you get this huge bonfire, and and the person keeps adding dried dung and twigs and dried grass to the fire, and how it would never go out. So the, you know, the process of living in the way that we mostly live, there's a fire raging or a fire burning at least, and all of our attempts to deal with the unpleasantness of this fire is uh, unfortunately feeding the fire. There's a particular fuel for the fire. And this brings us to that phrase that some of you have been working with. When there's dukkha, there's attachment. When there's attachment, there's dukkha. So whenever the mind's identified, attached, fixated, on anything, feelings, perceptions, sensation, mental objects, mental formations, even consciousness. When there's an identification, fixation, attachment, there's suffering. When there's no attachment, there's no suffering. Now this is a reflection we want to do. This is the fuel. So this is uh, in this uh, same section in Ajahn Tanisro's book, Like a Fire Unbound. He gives a couple suttas. One is short, like a flame, like a flame's going out was the liberation of awareness. And then a longer discourse or section of the talk that the Buddha gave. One attached is unreleased. One unattached is released. And then later, if a practitioner abandons passion or attachment for the property of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, then owing to the abandonment of this passion, the support is cut off and there is no base for consciousness. Consciousness is thus unestablished, not proliferating, not performing any function is released. Owing to its release, it stands still. Owing to its stillness, it is contented. Owing to its contentment, it is not agitated. Not agitated, the practitioner is totally nibbanaid, right within. He usually translates that as unbounded. The practitioner is totally unbounded, right within. She discerns that birth is ended. The holy life fulfilled, the task done, there is nothing further 
for this world, this, these cycles of suffering. And so we've been talking about, uh, from the first night on, how the mind, not the conditioned mind, but using the word mind to represent the knowing. So the mind and experience, phenomena, are mixed up, confused. The mind is caught, identified, in the process of identification or attachment, is caught up with objects. That's why it feels we have, you know, we as a self are in this world of birth and death and trying to do something about it, trying to hold on and establish and fix the good things and trying to shake off and get away from the bad things. But of course, ultimately, it's all ungovernable. We're frustrated, but we try harder because we don't know what else to do. And then there comes along some people, you know, the Buddha or you know, who knows, there's many people have stumbled upon this insight that can clarify the situation, like to help point out how struggling to be happy fuels the fire. Like when things really work out well and the mind gets identified with it, we've set up suffering. We've added fuel to the fires. Or when something goes bad, like we're sitting in meditation and we start to feel uncomfortable, and we pick that up as a theme, I don't like this pain in my knee. Well, things get worse. We've added fuel to the fire. And the Buddha talks about the escape in that 40 cartloads of timber <coughs> metaphor or talk that he gave. He ends, uh, he ends that section by saying, just as if a great mass of fire were burning into which a person simply would not periodically throw dried grass, dried cow dung, gra dried timber, so that the great mass of fire, its original sustenance being consumed, and no longer other being offered, would, without nourishment, go out. Even so, practitioners, in one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance, craving stops. In the stopping of craving, sustenance stops. He's translating what usually is translated as clinging uh, for sustenance. From the stopping of sustenance, clinging, becoming, birth, aging, illness and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair all stop. Thus is the stopping of the entire mass of suffering and stress. But we don't really understand the not feeding the fire unless we understand the nature of the fire. That's really our our job in life. And <clears throat> this is why, you know, Buddhism kind of gets a bad rap sometimes because of the emphasis on dukkha. But the truth is, uh, we don't learn much if things are going really well for us. We tend to, with minds that we have now, we tend to get lost in a kind of contentment or satisfaction when everything falls our way. 
in the Buddhist cosmology, it's called deva realms. But it's not like you have to be an angelic being to experience that. Sometimes in our life, things do work well. I mean, just having been at the center of the community for a long time, I see people coming and going, and often people, not it's not the only way people come into the practice, but often people come into the practice because there's a breakup in a relationship or they're um, experiencing some loss or some health problem or just some confusion about life. And it's interesting, too, sometimes when things go well, they stop coming. They meet somebody, fall in love, have a nice relationship. It's like the need for practice disappears, seemingly, in people's minds when things are going pretty well. And then suffering reemerges, as it inevitably will for us in our lives, and then people get interested again. It's like that famous line from the Buddhist teachings. Let's see, I think I have it somewhere. have it exact, but I can kind of paraphrase it. Oh, here it is. From the Aguttana Nikaya, that section of talks, the Buddha said, what is the ripening of suffering? When someone is overcome and her mind is obsessed by suffering, either she sorrows and laments and beating her breast, she weeps and becomes distraught, or else she undertakes a search externally. Who is there that knows one word, two words, for the cessation of suffering? I say that suffering either ripens in confusion or in search. I mentioned not too long ago about Ajahn Punadamo's talk when he was here a few weeks earlier. Gave the month the evening Dharma talk in uh, December. And he, in part, spoke of the sutta, the discourse the Buddha gave on transcendental dependent origination, or how it's lawful, how the mind lawfully frees itself from confusion. And of course, the starting point is suffering. I mean, that's where we have to start. It's like Ajahn Chah says something like, uh, you know, if you want to go somewhere, you got to walk in the door. And if you want to do Dharma practice, you have to walk in the door of dukkha. You have to get interested in dukkha. We have to actually welcome it in. And in that sutta, uh, so there's suffering, and then normally, as the Buddha says in this in this uh, quote that I read, you know, you, normally we get distraught when we're experiencing suffering, discomfort. But sometimes what arises for us is faith. Faith that the experience of dukkha, this, this experience of weight or contraction in my mind, it doesn't have to be this way. That doesn't mean it's not this way. It doesn't mean I'm not suffering now. But the birth of faith in the mind is casting doubt on the experience we're having, that it's optional. It's not somehow inherent in the conditions of the moment to be weighted down to be upset, to be frustrated. 
So we need to ask ourselves that. Like, you know, whenever, whatever we're experiencing, like even pain in the body, you know, what is the experience of pain when there's no sense of somebody not liking it? What is the experience of getting older when I'm not constructing a sense of a somebody who prefers being young? Because whatever our problems are now, you know, we all have our problems, but are you thinking about your problems all the time? So let's just bring to mind some problem in your life situation, whether it's medical or your pet doesn't like you anymore or you lost a close friend. So that problem, what is that problem when you're not thinking about it, for example? What is the effect of the problem when you're not thinking about it? We want to get a sense of the sustenance or the fuel that suffering depends on. I'm not saying, you know, the trouble with, it sounds like I'm saying distraction would work, but the trouble is distraction's a lot of work. And we gotta work at not remembering our problems. But what we can understand is, it's not the problem itself, it's not the loss, it's not the pain in the back, it's not our cold or our being single when we wanna be in relationship or being in relationship when we want to be single. It's not those particular situations that's the problem. It's something the mind does, you know, which we give a nice word. We call it attachment or identification. So this is what dukkha points out for us. The reason we take up dukkha as an object of respect and reflection is because we want to see this yoke. What yokes the mind to the world that comes and goes and creates a lot of confusion and suffering? What yokes the heart to things that are inherently insecure, unstable, inconstant, unreliable? It creates an existential uneasiness that's never extinguished until we see this yoke. And it's this process of identification, selfing. Like a Sri Lankan monk said, that famous line, no self, no problem. And we could add, you know, with self and problem. Related to that passage I read about the Buddha saying that suffering either leads to search or it leads to, I mean, leads to, you know, lamentation and more frustration or it leads to search is a line now from Achan Cha. Many of you have heard this, but it's worth repeating. You can just imagine, you know, yourself as a young man, probably somewhat naive and idealistic, as probably Jack Kornfield was when he showed up at the monastery to be a student of Ajahn Chah. And uh, this very respected teacher, the first thing he said to Jack Cornfield, who was then a monk, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. 
And Jack Kornfield says, what do you mean, afraid to suffer? And Ajahn Chah said, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that you run away from, which follows you everywhere, and the suffering that you are willing to turn and face <coughs> and thereby find the liberation that the Buddha taught for all of us. Now I know, you know none of us probably is ready to turn to all of the suffering that we experience in our lives, all the confusion. But we can uh, at least understand the, sort of the wisdom because what we definitely know, I think, it's fair to say, we definitely know the suffering involved in running from our suffering. You know, the suffering of denial, the suffering of resisting things that are already that way, and the suffering of worrying about things that haven't happened yet. I mean, we know how much suffering we add on unnecessarily. That, I think, is an experience we all know. And probably, if we reflect, we also know how much suffering has been abandoned for us at different moments in our life, where instead of running from that big, seemingly scary wave, we just stopped, maybe dove in, you know, and it wasn't so bad. It's like what felt big and hairy, <coughs> mean, and unworkable was workable. You might not know this about Ajahn Sumedho, but you know he was uh, he was pretty old when he got interested in I mean started seriously practicing Buddhism. He had been in the Navy, and then he was a grad student at UC Berkeley, and I think he was married for a while and got divorced. And it wasn't until his early 30s that he ended up in Thailand practicing. So in one article of his on Dukkha, he says, some people think it's good karma to just have an easy ride, to be born with wealthy parents and high status, a beautiful appearance, intelligence, an easy life, all the blessings, all the good things. It's good merit, good parami, and all that. But when I look at my own life, incredible challenges have come to me that have shaken me, that really upset me and disappointed me to the point where I have contemplated suicide. I just wanted to get this over with. I don't want to spend more and more years in this realm. I can't take it. But awakening to that, I realize that I am quite willing to take what life presents and learn from it. That's the challenge, to see that this is an opportunity that we have as human beings, as conscious beings. If you put it into the context of knowing the world as the world, we can take anything. We have incredible abilities to learn from even the most unfair, miserable, painful, and nasty conditions. These are not the obstructions to enlightenment. It's whether we awaken or not. And of course, the Buddhist life is sort of a metaphor for this. You know, 
the story, of course, where he was this very protected prince, and the father, because of some soothsayer, was compelled to keep the prince, Buddha, the prince Siddhartha, away from all of the ugliness of life. So he was hidden away in beautiful palaces and got whatever he wanted and had a lovely wife. And at the end, before he left, a newborn son and was healthy and successful as a prince, successful at the martial arts that he learned as a warrior, king, or prince, rather. But uh, at some point, you know, he met the heavenly messengers. Somebody asked Ajahn Tomato once, a Christian, about whether in Buddhism there are angels. And the Buddhist, uh, and Ajahn Tomato said, yeah, there are angels in, in Buddhism. You know, these four heavenly messengers you probably remember from the story. Sickness, old age, death, and renunciation. These are called in Buddhism the heavenly messengers because it's what helped the Buddha awaken. And so think about those things in our life that we thought we couldn't handle. And, you know, in certain times at least, we had the wherewithal to practice relaxing a little. And instead of putting all of our energy in denial or distraction, we instead relaxed. And the thought, <clears throat> the thoughts, I can't take this anymore. This is too much. This is not okay. This is not fair. Because we weren't reacting to those thoughts, our whole relationship to those kinds of thoughts shifted. Because now, I'm sure this is true for you guys too, now I can have thoughts like that. I don't like this. This is too much. This has to change. And I don't believe them like I used to believe them. I mean, I'm not afraid of my mind freaking out like I used to be. You know, think about those claustrophobic feelings you get, like at the beginning of a retreat sometimes, or being in a room with people, or humiliating yourself in a way. Think about how much we've learned that what appears to be unbearable isn't actually unbearable. How many difficult places we've gone into and out the other end. And I'm not trying to argue that it's pleasant, but that it is liberating not to be afraid of what we used to be afraid of. You know, maybe you used to be afraid of the dark, or afraid of flying, or afraid of intimacy, or afraid of, you know, being part of a cult at Common Ground Meditation Center. (laughs) But uh, then you realize, I don't mind being a cult member. (laughs) And it really begs the question, like, uh, what suffering is left to turn to? I mean, I, one of the things I, I said to Rini many times over the last couple of months when she's staying at her house and as her disease just continued to progress, you know, I, I told her how grateful I was that she was there and how liberating it was to practice just, just sort of uh, 
being reminded of this truth of you know the insecurity of, a, of the body the nature of the body to get sick and die and that it was just I was so grateful that she was willing to sort of be with us in that way and you know it wasn't you know sometimes I thought well am I using her you know, it's like using her for practice but this is this is what we can do for each other is like uh, being this is what I think we mean by being authentic it's like not having to pretty ourselves up for each other or to pretend that we're better than we are so that we can really learn from each other like not to be afraid of what we see I mean I know in my relationship with Wynn my partner that one of the real powerful places for growth for me is learning to be as you know as we get more intimate and in a way more transparent you know just being able to see directly what's going on probably for each other and not being afraid of suffering that I might see or confusion that I might see or uh, success that I might see like not letting those things trip me up as much as they would otherwise trip me up like the kind of Oh, is she better than me? Is she more successful than me? You know, or, you know, uh, feeling like, oh, I can't, like suffering is contagious. If I'm close to somebody who's uh, in a difficult place, then somehow it will get, you know, I'll get conta- uh, contaminated in some way. And I think this is what we do as a community, too. You know, we kind of agree together to be suffering human beings so that we're not just learning from our own suffering but we're learning from the sort of truth of change and the truth of reactivity as we see it around us it's one of the great things about being here a lot you know people show up in all different states and you know still i'm not not, this is still a real edge for me you know it's like wait a minute that person should be you know they don't have a right to be acting this way or you know this is the place for that kind of behavior and then you know hopefully usually it isn't long before I realize that you know this great cosmic yes yes this is exactly what's supposed to be happening it's a teaching this is a teaching it's like the crossroads I can react I can sort of meet reactivity with reactivity or I can sort of stop fueling the fire. And this is such a gift for everybody when anybody does this. You know, when somebody meets my defensiveness or my reactivity and they don't, it isn't, they don't sort of pick it up. They just receive it. They say, yes, this is allowed to be. People can freak out. People can react. People can get upset. It's okay. That's what happens sometimes. So this is this is the real engine of awakening is the heart that can be intimate with dukkha it's not only sort of the proximate cause for calm you know we've been talking a lot about calm but to be calm we have to somehow process the dukkha the uncertainty the discomfort in the present moment but just even that preliminary work begins to reveal something really profound. You know, 
I think it's important to ask that question. Well, what is attachment? I mean, what is dukkha without attachment? What is any difficulty you bring to mind without the attachment? This is from um, Larry Rosenberg, his recent book on death and dying. And he basically structures the book around the four heavenly messengers of old age, sickness, death, and renunciation. The Buddha told us that we suffer because we cling to things in a world of change. The way to end our suffering is to cease clinging. If we could really give up our attachment and die to things now, we would no longer fear death because we would have nothing to lose. We would already have given everything up. We don't have to wait for death to realize the benefits of giving up our attachments. Such letting go is one of the most creative acts a human being can perform and brings with it a whole new energy. I think that's such a powerful statement. Such letting go, the dropping of attachment, is one of the most creative acts a human being can perform and brings with it a whole new energy. Because this whole world, I mean, according to the Buddhist worldview, the whole world as we know it is driven, this is samsara, is driven by attachment, by craving. This is literally the sort of, you know, the building blocks of the world we live in. And from especially in a Theravada sort of view of things, samsara doesn't exist if, unless there's craving, unless there's this attachment. So given the sort of momentum of this, and here we are as a human being experiencing some something we really like or something we really don't like, you know, triggering that attachment, the reactivity, the attachment. And so that just to put it in context, like what a creative act it is not to follow through with that impulse to get attached and to push away what we don't like or grab what we do like. It's like an amazing movement of the heart. And we can begin, of course, in just little ways. We don't have to go right to the the thing that sort of generates the strongest reactivity or attachment. So he goes on, Larry Rosenberg, and says, that energy isn't something we cultivate, and it doesn't become one of our acquisitions. It simply emerges as we give up our attachments. It flowers, our attachments wither. Abandoning, abandoning our attachments can sound like a depressing act, task, the very thought may bring up feelings of sadness and vulnerability as the ego is being deprived of a primary source of nourishment. But this letting go brings with it clarity and brightness. It opens up, it opens up to a dimension of incomparable fulfillment, peace, and joy. That is an easy thing to say, of course, but not so easy to do. Giving up attachments is not something we do once and for all and then are done. It is an ongoing process all our lives. But I want to emphasize that it is also not something to think of as being far off in the future, the way we sometimes think. Think we will practice for years and finally achieve something called awakening. Liberation like death 
is not a goal that sits at the end of a long road. It happens now and only now. It is present this moment if we want to choose it. retreat, of course, is to make that choice. You know, just daily life, retreat, sitting practice, it's really all the same. Can we make that choice? And remember, this is why I started the talk by saying it's the focus isn't dukkha. The focus is dukkha and the end of dukkha. And it might be good to just to make it a habit that whenever we think about the path or the teachings and dukkha comes up, we never think of dukkha, we never sort of see that as part of the path without adding and non-dukkha or the ending of dukkha so that we really understand that the emphasis on dukkha is to see the ending. One of the powerful things Sharon Salzberg says, I think in her book on loving kindness, but somewhere in one of her talks, is that it's opening to dukkha, I mean, you know, Dukkha as an experience, the experience of feeling weighted or burdened, isn't itself helpful at all. It's dukkha. But it's that creative movement that Larry Rosenberg pointed to. It's the not getting attached, not reacting, that is liberating. So what Sharon says, it's, it's opening to dukkha is redemptive. Dukkha itself is not redemptive. But a heart that is willing to open to dukkha, or as Ajahn Sumedho says over and over again in his different talks and books about welcoming dukkha, he, he realized in his own practice that just turning to dukkha wasn't enough because there could be, you know, it's the mind is very can get very subtle and its resistance can be as subtle as anything. So we have a sense that I'm sitting with my discomfort, I'm sitting with my impatience, I'm sitting with my restlessness, I'm sitting with my sadness. But it's almost like we have to welcome it in, we have to consciously invite it in. Or another way of saying that is to consciously be interested in it and to respect it as a like a great teacher. This is just like, you know, can you imagine if the Dalai Lama walked in the room or you know, Pema Children or, you know, one of the famous teachers just walked in the room and said, here, you guys are having a retreat. <laughs> Thought I might make myself available. You know, I'll be in the room. You want to come talk about the heart or mind? Just please stop in. I get as much time as you need. We would be so respectful and probably, you know, and grateful and appreciative. And so we can uh, see the experience of dukkha, however it manifests, whether it's just sort of a sort of a subtle, irritating, nudgy little mind state or something full blown big, you know, where we feel so justified in being upset. 
but to see it as a heavenly messenger, like a great teacher. And that even if we don't have the resources, the space in the mind to sort of uh, experience the liberation from it, it's like we can hold it as a teacher. We can let faith sort of manifest, maybe not now, but this is not what it seems to be. Whether we're contemplating our own death or aging or loss, this is not what it seems to be. It's like, you know, I mentioned earlier today that uh, Rini Howard passed away about 1.45, I think, this afternoon. And, and uh, you know, for me, the experience is uh, my heart feels really good. I feel like just a lot of love and a feeling of... Uh, of release and wholeness that I associate with Rini's passing. And, uh, you know, it's not that I'm naive. You know, Rini was, would, would have preferred not to die. I mean, I, I know she didn't want to suffer, have all that physical discomfort, but she was very clear. She, she wasn't ready to die. She had business with her son and with her friends and things she wanted to do in life. But it's not like uh, we have to, you know, it's so easy for us to think that, to sort of just look at one thing, like the fact that this person had to let go of things she cared about. It's so easy for us to see that and to feel justified in saying, this is bad. But why do we have to do that? We don't have to define it in any way, good or bad. It's just what it is. And I think that's what's liberating. That's what feels really light and free, is to uh, not be weighted by even you know my limited connection with that. To not feel compelled to make it one way or another. And for me, it just is like I mentioned earlier, it's just this great reminder. You know, any kind of seriousness I have about my agenda or my life, that doesn't really hold up when we see how fragile and insecure everything is. It's, uh, you know, it can be a really powerful reminder. We, we have this thought, of course, you know, that if things worked out, if we got what we wanted, if life turned out the way we wanted, that, that we'd be happy. But, you know, it doesn't take much reflection to realize that's just not in the cards. The Buddha has this line where he says something like, even if it rained gold coins you know, for a long time, we still wouldn't be satisfied. You know, somehow it's not going to, even if everything happened the way it was supposed to happen, this is the nature of craving. Like there's no end to it. It's not like gratifying, wanting things to be other than they are, leads to 
this quenching of dukkha. So I wanted to save some time tonight um, so people can share some thoughts if you have um, around the experience of dukkha or anything that seems relevant to the talk. Also feel free to ask any questions you have. So what comes to mind? It's always nice to hear um, testimonials of turning, opening to Dukkha, welcoming it, and just your experience with that. Carol and then Doug. Just a very simple question. Identification. Is identification of seeing what's being seen? Yeah, that's one of the ways the Buddha talked about that yoke between the activity of seeing and the object that's seen. And the identification is the yoke. It's a stickiness between the two. It's something extra that doesn't need to be there. So it's not about not seeing, and it's not about not having objects that are seen. It's about not having that extra thing that can arise when the eyes see something or when the ear hears something or when the mind thinks something. And that stickiness, that selfing, you know, where we impute, project the self, there that either likes or doesn't like or doesn't care about what's being known. So that's the extra piece. Doc, did you have a thought? Can you get uh, confused about attachment with um, loved ones? Um, I guess the way, like, Well, probably, that, I mean, the answer to that question goes both ways, honestly. You know, sometimes I'm attached, and sometimes I'm attached to not being attached. <laughs> I mean, it's like sometimes I'm aversive, and sometimes I'm attracted to, to being connected. I mean, and that we want to be really honest with, that even things we really like, we realize it's like everything is in constant, including what we like and don't like. And that really is important to see, because it takes the seriousness out of our likes and dislikes. So like, even if I'm 99% of the time really liking and attached to being Wynn's partner, and 1% of the time I'm not liking it, well, recognizing the 1% of the time where I'm not liking it, sort of, it sort of pops the bubble of the liking it. You know, it's like, I realize that that's not always so. So it's not as easy to build a self I'm the one who's attached to win, or I'm the one who doesn't like this. It's like, you know, pick your favorite or least favorite politician. You know, so you might bring somebody to mind like Barack Obama or George W. Bush, and whether you like the person or don't like the person, you you can see, let's say it's someone you don't like, and you can just like list all the things you don't like about them. But if you're honest and, and the mind is relaxed, you'll notice there's some things you like about them. But see, we don't like that because it sort of gets in the way of our fixation. So part of what we want to see with our loved ones is it isn't just one thing. We have 
It's like in every moment, literally, we have a different relationship with our loved ones. But the mind summarizes it, and we get deluded by that summarization. You know, oh, I must love this person because he's my son, or he's my grandson, you know. But I'm sure sometimes your grandson irritates you, you know. And you're happy to go home to your place, you know, to be done babysitting or something like that. Yeah, but I'm attached. Mm-hmm. But are you attached in the moment when your son comes home and you no longer have to babysit and you're happy to go home? In that moment, are you attached? See, we just assume we're attached all the time, don't we? Well, I assume my, my loved ones are attached all the time because I want nothing but health and Right, but but just because you would have now we're kind of jumping around, but just to address that point, just because your heart would hurt if they were suffering, doesn't mean you're attached. Mm -mm. No, because uh, if something happened to you, Doug, my heart would hurt, but I don't feel attached to you. I don't feel attached to how your life unfolds. Well, I think I am attached, you know, at least in moments. But see, that this is the point I'm trying to make. You know, I don't. It's a. It's sort of a, not a fair question because you're you're painting it as it's this or it's that. And what I'm saying, it's not this or that. And it's it's the not seeing how fluid the situation is that keeps us confused. It's like with your loved ones. You know, we just assume it's just one thing. I'm just attached. But we're not. In moments, there's attachment. In moments, there's not attachment. In moments, there's aversion. And we want to notice all of those different places we are with our loved ones because we'll realize, if we notice all the different places, we'll notice how much more wholesome non-attachment is than either the aversion or the attachment. The non-attachment is what allows for intimacy. Aversion and attachment gets in the way of intimacy. You see, just experiment. It's like when you're really identified with your grandson, really attached, it's like you can't completely show up because the concern, the love, the, the sort of a passion for the child, kind of that idea is in the way of intimacy. You can't actually be with them because your idea that this person's important is sort of dominating your mind. And there's no receptivity or, or little receptivity. And this, we want to experiment first with small things, you know, instead of the big ones. Like little aversions and little attachments. And then just going to this place where we, we are able to let them go and just open to a kind of inclusivity, like a, a full wholehearted welcoming of the experience, a kind of a don't-know-mind about it. So it's not a don't-know-mind because we're not connected, but it's a we're so connected, we're so willing to be vulnerable or present that we don't have any time to form an opinion of whether this person's important to me or not important to me. It's like... I bet there are moments when you're playing with your grandson where you don't, it doesn't occur to you that you're attached to him or her. You, you have to like, it's like, you, and you can catch, this would be a great moment to catch where you're playing with your grandson, 
there's just a lot of joy. And then at some point, the mind recognizes the joy, takes it personally, and the thought will arise, I really love my grandson. And then probably on some level, conscious or not, I'm not sure, there'll be a feeling like, I don't want anything to happen to him. I don't want this to change. You know, and, and it's like we can go from real pure joy to the mind getting sticky and gummed up and tight very quickly. So the question is, how can we return? How can we go back to that, that sort of place of intimacy? Not knowing whether we're attached or not attached, not even knowing, not even, it, not even being a relevant question. There's just the being in the moment, you know, in the experience of the moment. It's like I noticed, you know, not just today with Rini's passing, but just over the, the last several weeks, I just have an energy arising like, uh, you know, like, well, there's somebody really sick, you know, should I be this way, should I be that way? You know, just a kind of uh, like wanting to do it right, wanting to be skillful. You know, and just really seeing that attachment to, you know, wanting to be skillful, wanting to be useful, and just feeling how in the way it is for me to just being relaxed and present and responsive in the moment. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Jenny. So is it really just when the self gets But that's just another word for attachment. That's how I'd use it, is not to see those two attachment and selfing as two different things, but really that's what self is. I mean, this is like uh, shocking even to think of intellectually, but to just hold as a possibility that everything we take the self to be is just some reactive pattern in the mind. And when there isn't uh, an active reactive pattern, there's no self. But don't, we don't notice those moments. We tend to just ignore those moments. They don't register. What catches our attention are moments where there is self, there is attachment, there is some reactivity. Oh, I really love this. Or, oh, I really don't like this. That We remember those moments. But when we scan back on our life, we don't remember those moments so much where there weren't sort of attachment or identification. And even if we had those moments, the moments we remember are the moments that happened just after those moments where we got identified to the freedom. <laughs> now, oh, that was such a great, you know, playing basketball with my friend. I sometimes mention the story of playing with Ramananda, a good friend of mine, uh, when I lived in San Francisco and lived at the San Francisco uh, Integral Yoga Institute. And uh, we would play one-on-one -on -one basketball. And, you know, but what I remember is the attachment, like I remember really liking doing that. The actual experience of playing, I don't remember that. I remember the attachment, because that's what the self remembers. And it rarefies the sense of self. We are addicted to drama. 
the drama of what we like and the drama of what we don't like. And most everything else we tend to ignore and forget. Yeah, Mara. Yeah, and the Buddha kind of makes this point, too, about a queen lost her grandson, or granddaughter, I forget, and she was really distraught. And, and she, she goes to the Buddha. She's a devoted student of the Buddha's and asks for you know more grandchildren. She already has a bunch. I mean, she's, forget, it's like she had 10 kids, and each had 10 grandkids. Or I mean, it was some enormous number of, of uh, offspring and grandchildren. And, and asked for some more, and, and, and he... He reminded her that everything you're attached to, you're going to suffer, you know, suffer the loss. And one image he uses, or Ajahn uses actually, is like cow dung. You know, we don't get attached to things like cow dung. And not that, I'm not, I mean, we make that such a negative image, but the idea is like, uh, this is what metta means. Metta means they're not boundaries. Now, my relationship with Wynn, just the proximity of our lives together, my responsibility and the kind of the intensity of feeling will be different than when somebody across the city dies or if Wynn dies or Wynn gets sick. The intensity of the feeling will be different. But the idea is when we look at our partners, when we look at our close friends, we don't want to see the friend or the, the partner. We want to see Dhamma. So we want to see this sort of beautiful, it doesn't mean it's ugly because it's Dhamma, but it's natural, we want to see nature. We like, And I, I'm starting to get there sometimes in my relationship with Lynn, just to see uh, the interaction or to see, generally it's easier when we're not interacting, but just to see that life, that mind-body stream, as just a, a beautiful expression of nature, a, a beautiful, lawful, couldn't be otherwise expression of nature. And then it's really easy to be intimate in those moments. And I know it sounds really impersonal, but the the point is to try it out, like to experiment with it. And it is easy for aversion to creep in, like to use a teaching like this to kind of hold yourself apart. But that's not the point. The point is intimacy and transformation, transformation of any 
sense of boundaries or division. So that's the point. That's really the barometer of feeling of wholeness as opposed to feeling of alienation and, uh, and uh, distance or boundary. Other thoughts on the subject that come to mind? Working with Dukkha. Yes, Bruce. I know that feeling. And I, I've also noticed, like, so sometimes I'll use silence, like not talking, just to be intimate present. But I think the aspiration is not to be confused by having to talk and having to interact and the language that we you know, can avoid using, like to not lose the intimacy because of the language or because of the responsibilities that come with that particular interaction. But I totally agree that it's, it's easier from a distance. It's easier to love initially from a distance. It's much harder when we're in some enmeshed relationship, you know, with kind of overlapping roles and responsibilities and things like that, like a mother and a son or partners or whatever. But I, but I could definitely aspire to that. And I'm getting better at that, like, uh, um, and it's a, and it's about like letting go of agenda. So it's not just seeing the other person as a force of nature, but we really have to learn how to feel and see this home, this body and mind right here, also as a force of nature, and so that the the interaction with the other person can't be controlled at all. It's really an unknown happening. And I'm even more and more in my in my talks. I'm kind of exploring this way, uh, partly because I'm busy. I don't have time to prepare, but partly it just seems to be <coughs> the better way to talk about dhamma practice is to not be overly prepared uh, and kind of have uh, yeah just structured everything, but just to show up. Maybe time for one more comment or thought, if anybody has any. Oh, yeah, Clara. be just what it is. It's that poignant feeling in the heart. 
And uh, the question is, what are we going to do with the grief? Like you suggested, you know, can we... I mean, like everything in life, the, the practice is always the same. Can we be intimate with it? Can we welcome it? Do we have to see it as a problem or judge other people who don't have grief? Do you know what I mean? It's like we're always complicating things and we don't need to. This is one of the things I appreciate about my relationship with Wynn is that, you know, it felt like we went into it understanding a little bit like what you were saying, Spruce, when you said, I don't understand what love means anymore. Just that it's like permission to feel what we feel. You know, we even somehow wove that into our wedding vows for each other. That somehow being honest about the particular expression of our heart in that moment, that was what was relevant. Not to try to fit some mold, but to be willing to be intimate, awake to whatever expression there was. And I think, uh, you know, like with the example of Rini's passing today, it's so easy to assume that it should be this way or that way, as opposed to just being interested in how it actually is for us. Oh, it's like this. Losing a friend is like this. And not to second guess the actual experience. I mean, this is the heart of the practice is trusting Dhamma the way it actually is. So when we're feeling nothing, to really be okay about that. And when we're feeling something really deep, not to think that, oh, if I'm a Buddhist, I shouldn't be feeling this much pain. And there's that beautiful example from the suttas of the Buddha experiencing the death of Sariputta and Moggallana, his two chief disciples, as if the sun and moon had left the sky, which is a pretty powerful image, you know, when you think about, especially nowadays we hardly notice the sun and the moon, but those guys were living outside their whole lives. The sun and moon were like big deals. And to use that image of, you know, them not being there as his, you know, and the Buddha was somebody who was very careful with his words. He wasn't being poetic. He was expressing, the, I think, the real pain of loss of his close companions. So when people, for 40 years, they lived this intimate life together. And not, you know, often not an easy life. Just the joys of, you know, developing this this kind of the momentum of these teachings and the sangha, the community of women and men and the lay people. And then to to have that end, you know, and it's just like it's a really poignant description. So he says that it was like the sun and moon being uh, moved, removed from the sky. And then he goes on to tell Ananda not to weep, do not lament. Has this not already been shown by me to be so, that all that is dear and charming will become different, will become not, will become other than it is? What do you hope to achieve here, Ananda? That which has been born has become, has been formed, and which is of the nature to break up? Quote, may that not indeed, may that indeed not break up? This thing is just not possible. So, the combination of feeling that tremendous pain or loss and totally getting, totally being grounded in the understanding that resisting the pain is completely unnecessary and unproductive. 
that the only so it's like the grieving process you know the idea is to open to as much pain as we can open to and to have the sense that with practice we're going to be able to be more and more intimate with the ordinary inevitable pain of loss and of joy that come our way and we won't have to sort of take it in doses Feel like a good place to end. Let's take a few moments and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.